And we're back. Dr. J, what's going on? All's good here, brother. How about you? It's good, man. Today's Thursday. It's Friday Eve. Big weekend coming up for me. How say? I'm going to a tractor pull in Moulton, <laughs> Alabama. You ever heard of a tractor pull? Well, I have. You're not pulling yourself, are you there, brother? No, no. There's no tractor that could pull me, bro. This one, people get big diesel trucks and tractors and soup them up, and they pull a heavy sled down a dirt track and see who can pull it the furthest. It's the most Alabama thing ever. They're pulling a sled, so it's not tug-of-war against the other tractor then. They might do that. You but never know what's going to go on. I know. Show. You yeah, never know. Yeah. One of my patients told me that she's been before, and they have an auction where people sell cows and stuff. See, this is the kind of stuff that goes on until football season on Saturdays in Alabama. I know. Yeah. You got any requests? You need any chickens or anything? Oh, yeah. Well, no, I'll take the eggs for sure. Grass-fed, to hit, free range. I need to hit your brother up about getting some more eggs. Joey's brother has how many chickens? Kazillion. He has a kazillion chickens, and he sells eggs. The yellow parts of these eggs, are they're orange. You can tell they're healthier. They have so many vitamins. They taste better than the eggs you buy at the grocery store. It's no, wouldn't you say it's noticeable? Oh, without a doubt, yes. And you know, and large as well. But there again, I think that he just sells them to you and I. I'm pretty sure he gives them away to most everybody else. So. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, that's brotherly love. <laughs> Thank yeah. you, Dale. Yes, sir. Shout out. Yes, Dale. We're on to you, bro. Shout out to Dale. Yeah. Speaking of eating healthy foods, we were talking before the podcast about, didn't you say you had a patient who came in with acid reflux and GERD and she said that she has a disease now? <laughs> yes, actually. And also hiatal hernia, which by the way, we treated this morning as a fact. Acid reflux, aka GERD. What's the cause? Well. The real cause, not what they say the cause is. Well, the real cause is due to not enough acid within the stomach, so actually it's too alkaline. But, you know, healthcare society, again, where you're diagnosed with a condition, in this case it's GERD, which is gastroesophageal reflux disease. So, I got a disease, brother. Stand back. Go to the next room. Put I, your mask on. Yes, because I got my disease. And why does everything have to be a disease in this healthcare system of ours? Because it's truly not a disease. It's a dysfunction. Restore the function and the problem. They say the cause of GERD is stomach acid coming up, eroding away the digestive tract. Isn't that basically what they say the cause is? Yeah, overactive stomach, if you will. Arm. So that's why they give you an antacid, an antiacid to lower your stomach acid. But isn't that really perpetuating the problem? Yeah, because the antacid really is the wrong biochemistry, as it neutralizes that you know that most important, one of the most important of all body secretions, which is hydrochloric acid or HCl. That's the, if you will, the one thing the stomach is designed to do is to make acid, prevent the toxins that are coming into the body from reaching other parts of the body through the small intestines. And so it's got a job to do. And here we are attempting to shut down the one thing that is designed to do. And a lot of your doctors, you know, I like to say old school doctors, they very seldom put a patient on an acid more than about two weeks at a time because they understood that they were toying with the chemistry of the body that they knew prolonged use could actually wind up with a major dysfunctional issue. 
because it's going to have effects downstream in the body, right? If you're decreasing the amount of stomach acid, that's going to have an impact on the rest of your digestive system. You know, what does that do to your small intestine, your large intestine? What are some effects that having too little stomach acid might have on the rest of the body? Exactly. I mean, that acid is there to, you know, neutralize harmful bacteria. But the other key thing to it, you know, life functioning minerals and, and metals for that matter. Proteins, right? Yeah. Proteins, major. All the enzymes, actually, the carbohydrate, the fat. Without the acid in the stomach, you cannot break down minerals and, say, metals such as iron for the blood. Without that, we're unable to assimilate these necessary nutrients, which are going to lead to farther complications down the road. This episode is brought to you by Standard Process. Standard Process recognizes the negative impact that the standard American diet has on our overall health. They believe that processed foods deplete our food sources of the rich nutrition once found in them. Standard Process understands that good health comes from good nutrition and the best nutrition comes from whole foods. They dedicate their time to perfecting the production of whole food-based supplements from the soil used to grow crops to the manufacturing processes used to create the supplement. They have always focused on putting vitality into every bottle, and that's why we recommend Standard Process 21-Day Purification Program to our patients. If your body could use a reset, order your program today at us.fullscript.com slash welcome slash podcast. Lack of calcium absorption, you got osteoporosis, lack of magnesium absorption, you're going to wind up with cramping in the legs, restless leg syndrome. So all of that can be traced back to having too little stomach acid. Exactly. And what about anemia? Okay. What about the anemia problems that we're having in our country? If we don't have the acid to break down the iron necessary for assimilation, um, we're looking for problems associated with lack of stomach acid. The other one would be, what about the joints? You know, if without breaking down these necessary minerals, we're looking at arthritic problems, joint damage, et cetera. So having optimal amounts of stomach acid is obviously very important to your overall health. So medications that lower stomach acid are not necessarily doing what they're intended to do. No, because... Well, they do lower stomach acid. Well, they yes, do. I mean, but that's, that's what not the root cause of the problem. Let's think of it this way. Think of your stomach as sort of like a reservoir that's outside the body. Its job is whatever comes in, the first thing is to do is a defense mechanism. Hold on. Explain what you mean by outside of the body because anyone would say, oh, my, my stomach is in my abdomen. What do you mean outside of the body? Well, I want you just to picture for a moment. You're putting something into the body. It's going through the mouth. It's going into a, a holding center. That's your stomach. It first has to identify if there's anything that might be damaging to it, have to break it down. If it doesn't belong in there, let's say maybe it says, oh, no, you're out of here. You wind up expelling that. Some people might say, hey, I'm sick. No, in reality, your body is doing exactly what it needs to do, and that is get rid of that thing by which it could be dangerous to it. And so it's actually doing what it's designed to do. So, so I, what you mean when you say that the stomach is outside of the body is that your digestive tract is a tunnel that passes through the inside of your body, but the food that you take into your digestive tract never actually enters the body unless the selectively permeable membranes of the intestines absorb it into the body. Outside of that, the food that you take in never technically enters the body because the digestive tract is outside of the body. Is that what you mean? Yes, that's the next phase. So this is where we actually go into the 
the assimilation aspect of what it is that we are ingesting. But first, that has to be, you were talking about earlier about the proteins. Are any other enzymes associated that need to function properly so that uh, these nutrients can be absorbed and then do their job that is required by them into the body? I have someone who's very near and dear to my heart. She was suffering from GERD or acid reflux for years and years and years. And I believe she tried medications and she tried this and that and nothing was working until guess what she did? Cleaned her diet up. Imagine that. She stopped eating so much sugar and bread and, uh, and dairy. And as soon as she removed those components from her diet, the GERD went away. So it's almost like your body's intelligent or something, you know? It's like when you eat something that doesn't mesh well, it's almost like your body wants to reject it and it uses that acid to help to try to push it back out. Yeah, side effect, if you will. I mean, sometimes with these 21-day cleanses that we were talking about last week, with some patients, that settles the problem right there. Some of these ideal protein-type diets um, where you're eliminating a lot of these processed carbohydrates, for some people, that's the first thing that goes away is their acid reflux issue. By taking a 21-day cleanse, you're saying people have cleared up acid reflux-type issues? Absolutely. And other digestive issues, too? Yes. Not all the time, but for some people, that might be the underlying condition. In reality, we're going to talk about this too, you know, is that this is actually a gas reaction that occurs. The acid reflux itself is really due to the fact that what's happening within the stomach, we don't have enough enzymes in the food today. 40 years ago, if you brought food home, you ate it rather quickly, otherwise it spoiled on you. That food had enzymes in it. So today, a lot of times we're buying something off the shelf in the grocery store that we don't know how long it's been there. Okay, then it comes home and it may stay in our cupboard for another month. Then we consume this. There's no way that there can be anything alive in there. That's why I use the term dead food. If we don't have the enzyme within the food, if we put this into our body, now we have to use our own digestive enzymes that have to work overtime now because the food is void of the enzymes. So now we are putting them on heavy-duty work. People ask me, well, how does this happen? How do we wind up with two alkaline and intestinal tract. Well, without the enzymes to help us, then we're using up a lot of the body's natural stored. That's why so many people often benefit with just an enzyme when they eat the meals to help them digest that. Problem with a lot of people with the acid reflux issue is that the protein is really the main difficulty here. So they'll consume a a meal that's protein, some fat, carbohydrates. The stomach is not going to void that consumption of food until that protein is broken down adequately. Because we're consuming so many of these processed and simple carbohydrates, they are creating a gas within the stomach itself. This gas is going to increase pressure and volume. When we see this happening, now we get the bloating that a lot of people will talk about before they can even finish a meal. So as this gas continues to expand, Then we wind up with what's very prominent today, and I see this more frequent than I have in the last 20 years, and that is the hiatal hernia. The hiatal hernia is really literally when the stomach is ballooning, the pressure pushes it through the esophagus. Now, this patient is going to present with pain in the chest and the lower portion of the chest. And sometimes when they're consuming a meal, they may feel like it gets stuck right there and they can't eat anymore. 
in very severe cases, I've had a patient who actually could not even hold down water for days until we actually reversed the hiatal hernia. Nowadays, I push in sometimes as many as three to four in three hours in the morning alone, where I used to maybe see in the 1990 around one every month. So are you reversing these hernias through diet or through a different technique? It's a manual technique that I use where actually I am pushing that bubble back in. It's gentle, well tolerated. So what does it look like? The patient's laying on their back and so what do you do? Patient lays on their back and I locate where the hiatal hernia has actually created a little bubble there in the skin and I apply pressure there and hold the pressure until it disappears from under my finger and it goes back inside the esophagus. So once, once you've pushed it back in, what does the patient notice? Do they, do they notice a difference in their symptoms? Almost instantly, relief. Especially if they're in acute stage when they come in. The relief is immediate. However, once again, if we don't go after the cause for, it easily can, for lack of a better term, pop back out again. With something as simple as bending over without exhaling, that interthecal pressure is enough to push it back out, depending upon the severity of the hiatal hernia. Once again, a hiatal hernia is when you have so much gas building up in your system from eating the wrong foods that it literally swells and pushes the lining of your stomach through your esophagus? That's correct. And that causes a lot of pain? It does. Okay, so you have a technique that you manually push the hernia back into its proper position and that offers the patient a lot of relief? Yes. Okay, but the next step the step that allows that treatment to last is you got to remove the wrong types of foods, right? Well, you got to remove the wrong type of foods because they aggravate. But the key thing here is that you've got to restore the acid back into the stomach. Remember, the stomach is made to make the acid. And how do you do that? I use a product called Zypan, which is hydrochloric acid with digestive enzymes. Most importantly, the pepsin that's necessary for the breakdown of the protein. And that's standard process, Zypan? Yes, it is. That's hydrochloric acid in a, in a pill form that people can take. Correct. Do they take that with each meal or do they take it once a day? What's the dosage there? We start off with one per meal. Some of my patients, we are going to up that number sometimes to two per meal. The reason being is we're actually restoring HCL back into the stomach again. It may have taken that patient 20 years to get into the condition they are. So you will get the temporary relief by taking the Zypan with your meal. But in reality, we've got work to do here. We've got 20 years worth of damage, so we've got to rebuild the level of the HCL back in the stomach. See, this is where that a term I want to use oxymoron, if you will, with what man is trying to do today with the, what we call the protein pump inhibitor. That's your Nexium. That's your Privasec. These totally shut down what the stomach is designed to do. Which is, is? Make acid. Right. Okay. So your creator comes up with this idea. The stomach's going to do this. Somewhere along the line, the scientists and the pharmaceuticals decide, you know what, this is aggravating you, we're just going to stop that. The very thing that it's designed to do. Now, what's wrong with this picture? If we're not making acid within our stomach and we don't have that medium there, we're going to wind up with complications associated with the lack of the ability to break down the nutrients that are in the food, including 
powerful minerals like magnesium? How about calcium and its relationship to osteoporosis? How about the fact, again, we're not breaking down iron, which leads to anemic issues, right? So you can't stop that very thing that it's designed to do over the long haul and expect not to have reactions downstream. The so other thing- if you don't have enough stomach acid, you can take supplements and you can take magnesium, you can take iron until you're blue in the face. But if you don't have the stomach acid to break it down, it's not going to do you anything. You can't assimilate it. And you know, this is old school. You remember the old folk medicine, if you will? What they'll do is they'll take apple cider vinegar before a meal. What are they doing? They're making it more acidic before they consume the food so that they can digest the food and they don't get the irritation of the reflux from it. So they've been on to something that works very powerfully for a very long time. And this is how and why that works. That's what we're doing with the Zypen. Now we're starting to increase the acidity again that needs to be there in the first place. If we're taking a protein pump inhibitor or an antacid, we're destroying the very medium by which the stomach was designed to do. Now, when this happens, you can't just simply stop taking these medications because if you do, then it gets really ugly with a thing called acid rebound. And that is extremely uncomfortable. So the process there is to try to rebuild the stomach acid with Zypan on a daily basis And if necessary, absolutely work with your doctor to wean you off of the protein pump inhibitors before they create downstream complications that require, of course, more medications to suppress those symptoms. As far as Zypan goes, you would typically start a patient out taking one of those per meal, so one, three times a day. How quickly would you expect them to notice a difference in their symptoms? Literally within the first week. Hmm. sometimes within the first day. Here again, sometimes I recommend to them, look, if you feel like you're in mild distress, pop another one where you might in the past have popped a Rolaids, for example. Try ingesting the very thing that the stomach needs. Not an antacid, but more acid. So they're taking this at the same time they're taking an antacid or a Prilosec or a PPI? Correct, initially, yes, because we have to build those levels up. If we don't, then it's the acid rebound effect for some people is just too much for them. And then take. they're slowly weaning off of those PPIs with their primary care doctor? Uh, that's correct. Another symptom of having too little stomach acid can be downstream, can be joint pain and muscle pain because of just general inflammation. One that I see a lot in practice, and I know you do too, is plantar fasciitis. And that's really an inflammatory issue caused by what? Primary cause is due to stretching in the tendons in the bottom of the foot. Primarily the one that supports the medial arch. This is usually due to a collapse of the support mechanism in the inner arch of the foot, causing what we call overpronation, sort of an inward roll of of the foot. Many causes for this over the years, weight gain, overuse, people who run a lot, for example. So just having extra weight applies so much pressure to the bottom of the foot that it overstretches those muscles and ligaments in the bottom? Yes. Think of it sort of like plastic rings that hold a six-pack together. And if you pull one of the cans out of that plastic ring, that plastic ring has now been stretched and it's dysfunctional. Same thing is happening with the tendon on the plantar fascia side of that foot, on the plantar surface, I'm sorry, creating the plantar fasciitis. Once it loses its tone, you're not going to gain that back. There's no surgery that's going to restore that. So it's lost. So now what we have to do is try to prevent that from being exacerbated any further from that point forward. 
When you Google plantar fasciitis treatment, one of the top recommendations that any website will give you is to take a bottle of water, freeze it, roll your foot on it back and forth. Have you ever seen any actual results with that? Yes. The results are temporary. They're using anti-inflammatory. That's the idea with the ice. And so as you're rolling that over, you're stretching that fascia, which we're going to talk about a little bit later when we go over the treatment of that. So you're temporarily stretching that fascia and giving it a little bit of relief. If the cause of plantar fasciitis is that the plantar fascia is overstretched, stretching it more, would that fix the problem? No, it's not going to, not correct. That's not going to fix the problem. It may temporarily give you a little bit more elasticity within that area. See, one of the main complications associated with this is that people will get up in the morning and a lot of times the first thing they step on is either a hardwood floor or tile. So here, this hard surface is immediately putting a stretch on the arch support of the foot. First thing we don't want to do is get onto a hard surface and put a stress right back into that tendon immediately. And most of us do. So my recommendation for people if they have this condition is, you know, get a pair of house slippers. Certainly try to use the carpet as often as you can initially when you first get up in the morning to prevent that initial irritation. Do you think that the shoes that we wear have perpetuated the prevalence of plantar fasciitis? Well, that's... So shoes are, shoes are important. We know that. They protect your feet from glass. They protect your feet from hot concrete. But evolutionarily speaking, if we were walking in the forest barefoot our entire lives, don't you think that our feet would be so much stronger without wearing shoes and we wouldn't even have to deal with things like plantar fasciitis? Like imagine if you wore something like a shoe on your hand your entire life, how weak the muscles of your hand would be, how, how little dexterity you would have. You wouldn't be able to wiggle your fingers independently of each other the way that you can. And the fact that we wear shoes our entire life, don't you think that weakens the feet and causes us to have issues with the foot like plantar fasciitis? I would comprehend that. So would you recommend walking barefoot more maybe to strengthen the feet? Well, I think that that's something that you have to be predisposed to early on. I'll give you an example. You take some of these civilizations who basically spend their whole life barefoot. Some of these people over in Africa, they have flat feet, but do they have foot issues? Do they have plantar fasciitis? No, they don't because that's their, their, their feet are accustomed to that. They're strengthened, if you will. In our society, there's a lot of footwear, and some people have very beautiful arches. So High heels have to be a problem. I mean, think about the way that uh, – Think about the position that a high heel puts the ankle in. It tightens the muscles of the calf. When I was in chiropractic school, we had a professor there. I can't remember his name, and he probably wouldn't want me to mention it anyway because he did. He had a study published of the effect that high heels have on your low back. So what he did is he wore high heels around for months, and he did tests on his low back. He did pre and post x-rays and he did all these muscle tests to find out the changes that had happened to him wearing high heels for three months. Now, look, was this an excuse for the guy to wear high heels? I don't know. Hmm. But apparently it got some pretty good data. He found that wearing high heels for even just a few months had a really negative effect on his low back and he started having a lot of pain. So I'm certain that the footwear that we use on a daily basis has a pretty negative effect on the musculoskeletal system in general. You know, there's various studies up there. Some people say that if you're accustomed to wearing those, and I have seen a study where somebody had actually proven that there wasn't a correlation between heels and wearing flat shoes. So uh, I think the science is still out there. I 
some people have look, to, some Joey. People, I get it. You don't want people to stop wearing high heels. You know, I, I understand where you're coming from. No, some people I seriously do <laughs> want to stop wearing high heels, <laughs> and I'm not going to mention that name. But no, just to give you an example, though, I had a patient who I started with plantar fasciitis two weeks ago, and by the way, she's doing fine after literally just after one visit. Her problem was just that she came out of a pair of pumps one day, and within a matter of hours, she started experiencing the pain in the arch of her foot. And she had had that to the plantar fasciitis. She started feeling better after one treatment. Is that typical results that, that you get? I'm going to say the success rate is extremely high with the treatment that I use. But I want to kind of explain this analogy to you if you think about this. What's happening here is when with the plantar fasciitis, every time they weight bear, I want you to think of that tendon sort of like as a pair of pantyhose, if you will. And the place where the injury has occurred, there's a mild tear in the tendon at that spot there. So it's sort of like taking that pair of pantyhose and sewing a piece of leather into the edge of the pantyhose. And every time I go to stretch that pantyhose right there where that leather has no elasticity, we continue to create a tear there. So the leather is the scar tissue that forms? Eventually, this is the, this is the fibrotic tissue that occurs. Now, this fibrotic tissue, if it continues to manifest itself, this is where your heel spur comes in. See, it really does us no good to go in there and shave the hill spur down or cut this hill spur out because the cause of it has not been changed and therefore it's either one going to grow back. But we don't do that with our treatment. When we fit the orthotic, we're going to fit the orthotic with the spur in mind and we're going to create a little cavity for it to sit in so it's no longer aggravated anymore and usually it will soften itself up and often just disappear. So the key to that is to... <laughs> create a little bit of mild inflammation in that area where the fibrosing has begun. This creates what we call fibroblasts to the area. So if you cut your skin, you know how the outside the cut turns red on the outside. This is fibroblasts. It's inflammation. That's why it's red. So, so this look, is good inflammation. Good inflammation. A little bit of inflammation is good. It will heal. Inflammation for acute issues is a good thing, but chronic inflammation is when it becomes a problem. So when we talk about systemic inflammation and inflammation caused by food, these are negative types of inflammation. I just want to point out yeah. that difference. Yeah. So I'm going to create a mild inflammation. This inflammation is actually going to help us to heal. That's why we don't perform this two days in a row, because we have to give that time for that inflammation to settle down before we go back in and work it again, say within 72 hours after the initial treatment. Another treatment for plantar fasciitis that I've had really good results with is dry needling. I went to Chicago a couple of months ago and got my dry needling certification. And that was a game changer as far as what it can do for the plantar fascia. Because like when you say the, the leather in the pantyhose, right? The fibrotic tissue that builds up, that's where you apply the needle and then you hook up electric stem to the needle and send a little electrical current in there and it helps to stimulate the healing process. It pumps endorphins into the area, it pumps out the bad inflammation and it increases blood flow so that you can help to heal up that tissue over time. So I've also had pretty good results with that. What does the treatment look like that you've had good results with for plantar fasciitis? I know that you do a lot of soft tissue and scraping, breaking down that scar tissue. How do, how do you do that? Uh, yes, what I do is what I call a fascia release. So I'm going in there and putting friction into the area where that tissue has started to tear. Now, it's mildly uncomfortable the first time out because we're creating a little bit of inflammation. And what I'm doing is I'm realigning these cross fibers so that we are increasing the elasticity within that tissue there so that it's better able to withstand the stress put upon it without tearing again. After I perform that, then I will use 
a microcurrent in my electric muscle stem to help increase that circulation as well and also to help with the healing mechanism. Accompany that with some ice initially because, once again, I want an anti-inflammatory, all right? Often I'm going to also give my patients supplementation to help with the healing of the soft tissue that's associated with this problem, tendons and also correct connective soft tissue. One of the primary minerals that I love for this is manganese. Manganese is also a deficiency that results in things such as flat feet, instability to the connective tissue, tendons primarily. Wait, what does manganese have to do with flat feet? That mineral itself is a very powerful precursor to strengthening connective tissue. Again, another green leafy, which most of us don't get. Without organic soil, it's really hard to come by it anyway. Manganese is one of the supplements that you recommend as far as your musculoskeletal healing protocol in general or just for plantar fasciitis? In general. So if someone comes in with neck pain, manganese might be one of the supplements you recommend to help heal that scar tissue in, in addition to adjustments and deep tissue work um, and everything else. Yes, yeah, soft tissue, disc issues, ligaments, tendons, connective tissue. Manganese, what else? Well, just think about your primary minerals, magnesium, coarse calcium, selenium. I mean, just... So um, maybe a multi-mineral you might recommend? Always, <laughs> yeah. For, for just about every condition you've got going on in your body, a mineral is going to be beneficial for you. Would you recommend taking all those separately, or do you think a multi-mineral will cover the bases? Well, now in my protocol, again, I'm going to use a standard process product called Ligaplex One. I use that initially because that is f during my healing phase of my treatment for this ligament, tendon, muscle-related trauma that's occurred. Now, once I have stabilized that particular problem, then I will recommend for my patient maybe something uh, that is a high mineral supplement for the prevention of future injuries because we're feeding the body that very thing that's probably not getting to help sustain stability, if you will, into the connective tissue. You know, it's one of the things you have to ask yourself. Where were all these knee replacements and hip replacement surgeries 50 years ago? They really just, they weren't as common as they are today. What's going on here, people? Well, we're just not consuming enough of the proper foods to give our body what it needs to perform correctly. And that's because the nutrients are not in the food, right? You can eat salads till you're blue in the face, but if the soil that the foods were grown in are void of nutrients, then you're not going to get those. So that goes back to the top three supplements that everyone should take that we've talked about in the last episode. So I don't know if you haven't heard that episode, go back and listen to it. We re give recommendations for the top three foundational supplements that anyone should take to make sure that your nutritional gaps are met, meaning that you're getting the nutrients from supplements that you're not able to get from foods because the foods that we're given do not have the nutrients in them. Not anymore. Correct. And that is, of course, your multivitamin, your mineral, and polyunsaturated fatty acids like a fish oil. There's your powerful anti-inflammatory right there. Because, you know, the other treatment for plantar fasciitis outside of what we've been mentioning here is primarily it's a steroid shot, right? Which is treating what? Well, it's treating the inflammation, not treating the cause, but treating a symptom associated with it. And for a lot of people, extremely painful. Is it fixing the problem? No. Is it hopefully, maybe giving them some relief, could they possibly be exacerbating the whole issue 
because they're not feeling the pain anymore? Well, highly probable. So let's go after the cause, fix the cause here again, all right? You'll like this one. In the dry needling conference that I went to, they talked about a study that was done that compared a steroid shot in the plantar fascia versus dry needling. They tested it two years out, and it turned out that not only did the dry needling group have better results, the steroid group, they got worse over time. So the idea is that the only real benefit from having a steroid shot in the bottom of your foot is the physical needle going through the plantar fascia, just like dry needling. It's not what they inject in. It's just having that needle go through the plantar fascia is is what was producing the positive effect to begin with. Here again, it makes sense to me because then they're only treating a symptom in the first place and not correcting the problem. That's sort of why the bottom line here, once you develop this plantar fasciitis problem, it's always going to be there because we talked about the fact you can't reverse the damage that's done. And that's where the customized orthotic is absolutely, for the most part, it's the go-to fix-all, if you will, problem. And in your foot, you have three arches. And if one arch falls, the other two are going with it. So a lot of these orthotics that you're seeing today sold in stores and some that are even are only addressing one arch and usually that's the medial longitudinal arch and occasionally maybe a second of the three but if you're not supporting all three the relief is only going to be temporary at best so when you say you got three arches you got the medial the lateral and the transverse is that what you mean that's correct so the medial is the arch. when people think of the arch of the foot that's the medial arch that's the big one on the inside the lateral one is the one on the outside of the foot and the transverse is the arch that lies just under the toes and it goes sideways across the foot. Across, correct. So if you go by a pair of Dr. Scholl's, that's probably only addressing one of your three arches? Correct. On occasion, you might find a orthotic that might address the medial arch and maybe the transverse arch. But here again, you're not fixing the whole picture. So what kind do you like? Do you like foot levelers or what type of orthotics do you recommend? Yeah, yeah. over the 30 years, I always come back uh, to foot levelers. All right, Doc, you want to wrap it up? That sounds good for today. I think that was some quite a bit of information. To... Let's go get some lunch. Awesome. All right, brother. Thanks again. See you next time. <laughs>